remember, I'm the, the type of preacher that thrives on feedback. So I want to ask you for two types of feedback today. Type number one, if I say something that you agree with, that touches your soul, that you, you love, that you just like, please uh, confirm that with an amen. Go ahead and practice now. Amen. Or you can say, preach it, brother. <laughs> or you can say, as our brother Travis told me this morning, uh, what was it? Shell uh, it on down to the cob. There we go. Um, <laughs> Honestly, I have no idea what that means, but if you feel like shouting that out, please do. The second sign that you can give me, if, if I'm going a bit off course or going a bit long, just slowly close your eyes and begin to lean forward. I'll get the picture, okay? Second little quick business thing I want to take care of. Uh, Colby is taking wonderful care of us at the Book Nook. And last week, I announced that for this, this series on Habakkuk, we had a book of the month, uh, D.A. Carson's wonderful How Long, O Lord, uh, Reflections on Suffering, one of the best treatises on suffering you'll find anywhere. We've got more copies of that in this week. We also have a couple of copies of John Piper's Suffering and the Sovereignty of God. If you would like to go deeper in understanding suffering and what it does in our lives, why God would permit it, Go back to the book nook. Please, get one of those for yourselves. So we've come to the end today of our series on Habakkuk. And once again, I have to say it's been a challenge for me, thinking, listening, meditating upon suffering for so long. But I've got to say that this Tuesday, I had something of an epiphany. Epiphany is probably too strong a word, but I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to exaggerate in some way, right? So I was sharing the gospel along with a co-worker uh, to a couple of Thai Buddhist students that we have at our school. And as we were sharing, we, we came upon the subject of suffering. Now, if you know anything about Buddhism, you know that uh, suffering in Buddhism is quite a bit different than suffering for us. For them, there is no question of the problem of, of pain, the problem of suffering, because suffering, it's just not an issue. If you suffer, it's your fault. It's karma. If you are suffering in this life, it means that either you did something earlier in this life and now you're paying for it, or you did something bad in a previous life. And so they've got this immediate answer to anything. There's no question of suffering. Of course, there's also no forgiveness. There's no way out. There's no comfort for the sufferer. I mean, can you imagine going to a parent whose child is dying and having to look that parent in the eye and say, your kid's just getting what he deserves. He must have done something wrong in a previous life. That's when it hit me. (laughs) What we say about suffering is absolutely unique and absolutely ridiculous outside of the revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, think through the other major worldviews that that we encounter, whether it be religious, say Islam. In Islam, there is no unrighteous suffering, um, or no suffering, rather, of the righteous. They, They don't even believe that Jesus could have died on the cross because God would never permit 
that one of his righteous ones should get touched by suffering. So again, if you're suffering, it's your fault. What about Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons who we'll see around here, even in this neighborhood? Well, essentially, their answers come back to the same idea that uh, suffering is all caused by human free will, by our actions, by our bad decisions. And God either cannot or will not intervene to save us from suffering. (laughs) Now, we can certainly affirm that our sinful decisions do lead to a lot of suffering, right? But a God that is powerless to intervene and stop it? How can we worship such a being? Well, look at American society, the secular society that's around us. Suffering in America is something meaningless. It it comes about by, by chance of evolution. And so we should avoid pain. We should avoid sorrow at all costs. And we do it, don't we? We medicate. We inebriate. We numb ourselves with entertainment, with all sorts of media. We design our roads and our routes to work and whatnot to go around the areas where we might encounter suffering. When somebody gets too old or constantly in pain, we quietly put them away in a place where we don't have to encounter them constantly. We hate suffering and pain in America. And in the midst of all of that, the Christian stands up and says things like, count it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of any kind. Or you think of Paul, I rejoice in my sufferings. You rejoice in your sufferings? And more than that, we say that suffering is unavoidable. And in fact, it is the very good purpose of a loving and sovereign God. Suffering is something that God does to us for our benefit. That's pretty ridiculous. When it comes down to it, it's, it's often been said that God is more concerned with our character than he is with our comfort. And suffering is something that changes our character. For better or for worse, some people undergo suffering and pain and trial. They become embittered. They shake their fists toward God. Others are humbled, become more dependent and more compassionate. Suffering changes you. And that's exactly what we will see today as we finish up the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk, remember, has gone through intense suffering. First, it was suffering at the hands of his own people. He had lived through the heights of Josiah's kingdom and now was plunged to the depths of Jehoiakim. He saw around him injustice, horrible suffering for the righteous. And so he cries out to God, God, why won't you do anything? God tells him, I am doing something. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. They're going to come in. They're going to pillage. They're going to plunder. And they're going to lead your people away into captivity. So Habakkuk comes back to God and says, well, the the punishment is worse than the crime. The cure is worse than the disease. God, how long until Babylon gets theirs? God says, oh, it may seem like it's a long time, but wait for it. 
I am building a kingdom that will never be shaken and it will extend to the ends of the earth. But until then, live by faith. And that's where we come to today. We're going to look at the entire third chapter of Habakkuk. And we're going to look at it in three parts. First, verses 1 and 2, we're going to see Habakkuk's surrender. Then verses 3 through 15, Habakkuk's confidence. And finally, verses 16 to 19, Habakkuk's joy. Read with me the first two verses here. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigionath. O Lord, I've heard the report of you. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So even from the very beginning here, we see a great change has occurred in the life of Habakkuk. When last we saw him speak in in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk was almost like a petulant child standing on his watch post saying, God, I am waiting for you to answer. He had just complained. And now here, chapter 3, verse 1, Habakkuk is praying. But he's not just praying. It's a prayer, it says in verse 1, according to Shigionath. Now, we don't know exactly what this term means. It's only used in one other place in the entire Bible. But we're pretty certain it's a musical term. And if you look at the very end of this chapter, verse 19, you read that this whole thing is directed to the choir master with stringed instruments. So Habakkuk has gone from complaining to now composing a hymn. What we're about to read was supposed to be performed in front of the people of God and sung together in praise to God. Habakkuk has certainly changed. But the change gets even greater as we examine the content of this prayer. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. This report of the Lord is what we've been reading in chapters 1 and 2. The work that we read about here in verse 2 brings us back to chapter 1, verse 5, where the Lord says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. This is the work of God, that he is coming to punish his own people with the wicked Babylonians. And then he is going to turn around and he is going to punish Babylon for what they have done. Habakkuk says, I have heard of this work. I have believed this work. And because of that, I'm afraid. Remembering what we've been through, fear is a pretty good response to God's revelation, isn't it? God has shown Habakkuk that Babylon is going to lead away captives, some with flesh hooks through their mouths, some being dragged in huge nets. That may happen to Habakkuk. Certainly it would happen to some that he knows. Starvation is ahead. Desolation in his land. He's heard the work. He's heard the report, and he is terrified. But look at what he says next. In the midst of the years... Revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. 
in the midst of the years, this is a difficult saying, but it certainly seems that he's saying, now, God, don't wait any longer. Now, in the midst of this time, do it. Do what? Make what known? Exactly what you have promised. Habakkuk is actually praying, God, do the very thing that I fear. God, do the very thing that you have promised. Come and bring your righteous judgment. And this is where we see just how far Habakkuk has come. Because God has taken him from complaining to the point of utter surrender. It's terrible what God has promised to do. It's horrendous. It's fear-inspiring. But God, I know you. God, I trust you. So bring it. Do it. This is very similar to what we see in the life of Christ, in his prayers. Remember the, the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Remember his prayer in the garden before his death. Not as I will, but as you will. Habakkuk has come to the point where he lays down his comfort, where he lays down his desires, and he says, God, even though it seems hard, you do it. My friends, as we go through the the same process in our sufferings that Habakkuk has gone through in this book, As we come to God with our questions of how long, O Lord, and why, ultimately, it must bring us back to this. God, I I may not see the full picture. God, I may not understand everything, but not as I will, but as you will. I know that this is for your glory and for my greatest good. God, let your will be done. Let me tell you how this might break down in our lives. Um, Just this week, I came to the realization that my prayer was lacking in in fervency, lacking in this deep dependence and desperation for God. You know, the kind that we see in the Psalms where David cries out, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts after you, O God. I've become too comfortable in my prayers. I I realize that I can go to work some days thinking, I've got this. I can handle this. And so I started to, to cry out to God, Lord, please give me that dependence. And in the midst of those words, I froze. Does this ever happen to you? As as you're praying for something, you start to realize the um, impact that your prayer may make. And so the, the gears were turning slowly in my head. Wait a second. Okay, if I'm praying for desperation, how does desperation usually come? God doesn't usually just flip the desperation switch, right? It usually comes through crisis, through struggle, through suffering. So I started to think... Uh, God, I've got enough going on in my life right now that I don't need another crisis. So, um, you, you know, I take back what I just said. 
of course, that exposes all sorts of error in my thinking. And even as I was saying these things, rebuke was forming in the back of my mind, right? I mean, think of the, the picture of God's goodness that that paints for us. Like God is up there just waiting, waiting. Up, oh, you said the words. You said the words. You said, bring me to dependence. All right, crisis. Now, I know it's not good for you, but you said it. That's not the way that God is. Or, or think of the priorities that that exposes in my life. I value my own comfort more than I value the, the very fruits of God's spirit in my life. And so I had to come to this place of surrender. God, I don't care what it takes. I want you. I want to be more like Jesus. So that's what trial does for us, right? It breaks us down. It, it breaks down our pride, makes us more humble. It makes us more desperate, makes us more compassionate. God forms Jesus Christ in our lives as we suffer. But for that to happen, we need to submit. We have to surrender. Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't make Christians into masochists. We're not just saying, all right, bring it, Lord. Give me all the pain that you got. Look at what Habakkuk says at the end of verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk doesn't want pain. He wants God to be merciful, even as he's pouring out his wrath upon his people and upon Babylon. And yet, even in the midst of that, your will be done. The Christian doesn't love pain. He loves God's will. He loves God's purposes. My friends, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of the suffering that you are going through, have you come to the point of surrender? Have you come to the point where you've said, God, I don't care what it takes. I want your will to be done in my life. Even if that chronic pain never leaves you, are you willing to say, God, let your will be done? Even if that cancer never goes into remission, even if your children will never turn back to the Lord, are you willing to go through whatever that the Lord's will may be done in your life? God is forming Jesus in you. And that is to be treasured more than gold. Certainly more than your comfort. Now after surrender, Habakkuk turns to the past to paint a picture of hope for the future. Let's read this beautiful psalm from verses 3 through 15. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. 
Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. The light of your arrows as they sped. The flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You thrust the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced him with his own arrows, uh, the, the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Now, these verses are really difficult to preach. First of all, because Habakkuk masterfully does a job here of weaving together past and future. The images that he takes from Israel's past form the foundation of hope for God's deliverance in the future. But they're also difficult because this is poetry. If if we were to take and dissect every single allusion to the Old Testament uh, past in these verses, or, or looking forward to how they are fulfilled in the New Testament, it would lose all of its poetic beauty. So we're going to try and find some middle ground here, okay? At the very start of this, Habakkuk intentionally calls his reader's attention back to another song of praise that is recorded in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, this is Moses' final blessing upon the people of Israel before he dies. And his blessing begins in this way. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. We see a lot of the same imagery at the beginning of, chapter th- or of uh, verse 3 here. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. The image that's being shown is God rising up in the east. Both of these places are in Edom, east of Israel. God rising up like the sun. And just as the sun, as it as it first dawns, just has little glimmers of light, but then gets brighter and brighter. So it is here with the appearance of God on behalf of his people. And so Habakkuk says that he rises up from the east. His splendor more and more is filling the heavens. The earth is covered with his praise. Verse 4 hearkens our vision back to Mount Sinai. His brightness was like the light, like that of the sun, and rays flashed from his hand. 
Remember back to where, when God met the people on Mount Sinai to deliver the Ten Commandments. And as the people were gathered before that holy mountain, they, they saw the gathering of the clouds. They, they heard the voice of the, the Lord. They felt the shaking of the land. And they said, never let us see that again. Even that is too much for us. Moses, you go. You go and be with God. We can't bear to look upon this. And so Moses walks up into the mountain. He meets with God. He begs God to show him his glory. And God, God shows him just a little bit. The, the hindquarters, as the Hebrew says. And even that is enough. That when Moses comes down from the mountain, these very same words from verse 4 are used. Rays flashed from his face. He glowed because of the presence of the Almighty God. But even then, look at the end of verse 4. He veiled his power. The glory of our God, his power is so great that even that that little bit that's enough to make Moses' face radiate to the point where the people, when they saw him, said, cover that up, please. We don't want to look at that. Even that is a veiling of God's glory. In 1 Timothy 6, we read that he dwells in unapproachable light. So this God appears on behalf of his people. His light, his glory is blinding. And then we see in verse 5, destruction follows in his wake. Before him went pestilence and plague at his heels. This takes our mind back to Egypt, to the plagues that God inflicted on the Egyptians as a judgment so that they would let his people go. But it also brings the Israelites' mind back to the promises of Moses that plague and pestilence would be theirs if they forsook the covenant. Then the Lord comes. He stands. He measures the earth. The picture is of this giant to whom the earth is just a little thing that can be measured. He looks And he shakes the nations. The nations tremble before even the gaze of our God. The mountains, they scatter before him. The everlasting hills, they sink. Then in verse 7, the tents of Cushion are in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian tremble. This appears to be an allusion back to the book of Judges, where both of these nations were used by God to punish his people Israel. But then God turned and punished the very nations that punished Israel. This is exactly the picture of what God has promised to do to Babylon. Babylon would come in and judge, but then God would surely judge Babylon. And in all of this, we see that as God comes forth, there is nothing and nobody that can stand in his way. Mountains rise up, they wither. Peoples rise up, he lowers them. There is nothing that can stand between our God and the people that he comes to save. Verse 8, we see something of a transition. Now Habakkuk is speaking 
in the second person, addressing God as you. And in all of the following verses, we see this image of God as warrior. God coming forth in battle to defeat the enemies of his people. God riding forth in power to save. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? This is a collage of images. In the exodus from Egypt, God smote the Red Sea. It parted so that Israel may walk through. Again, the Jordan River parts before God's people. The river uh, Kishon parts and then swallows up the armies of Sisera in the book of Judges. God's anger was against the rivers for the salvation of his people. Will it now happen at the Euphrates, the home of Babylon? We see other Old Testament images coming forth here. Verse 11 Sun and moon stand still in their place. Joshua chapter 10, where God makes the sun stand still so that he can avenge himself upon the Amorites. Then we come to verse 12. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Listen to these words about the coming of the Lord Christ from the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in his righteousness he judges and makes war. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Past and future. In all of these verses, and we could go on and on, the image is clear. Our God is a warrior who rides forth to save his people. The earth stands before him, it is laid low. Nations rise up before him, they will be utterly crushed. Why? Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Habakkuk's confidence in God's future salvation lies in God's past salvation. God has acted mightily to save his people time and time again. And in that faithfulness of God, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Habakkuk knows that God again will come forth to save. Believer in Christ, your confidence as you stand and face all of the trials of this life is in the same God and his same past faithfulness to save you. Yes, we read about how God has acted in these ways in the past, and we know that he will come again in the future. We have just read about that in Revelation 19. But think of the greatest victory of our God, which was achieved not in battle, but upon the cross. He didn't just 
trampled down the nations. He trampled down sin and death. He didn't just pour out the wrath of God on others. He took it upon himself. And as Jesus hung there on the cross and God poured out all of his wrath upon him, he purchased salvation and victory through all of the trials of your life. Now we can look back and say, oh, I know, no matter what comes, no matter what happens, God will save me. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us. That's exactly what we've just been reading, right? The mountains rise up. The rivers are there. The the seas. The nations. All of that is nothing before our God. But even further, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friend, God has given up that which is most precious for you, for your salvation. Do you think now that he is going to fail to guide you through the light and momentary afflictions that you are going through in this life? And in saying that, I don't want to minimize your sufferings. They're very real. They seem impossible as we're going through them. And yet, know this. God gave something far more valuable. Is he going to be mocked? You gave up, oh God, your only son for that person, and now you're not going to give him the strength to get through that trial? It will never, ever be so. Your confidence in your deliverance in your future salvation rests in this right here. God did not spare his own son for you. He will not fail to give you all things. So now we come to the conclusion of the book of Habakkuk and some of the most majestic verses in all of scripture. Listen to verses 16 through 19. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the field, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Again, we see the trepidation with which Habakkuk faces this vision of the future. His body is trembling. He is literally weak at the knees. His bones, he says, are rotten. 
And his lips quiver as he even speaks this. And yet, he says, he will wait quietly. I think here we can, we can look back both to his complaints in previous chapters. No more complaints are coming out of his mouth. And to chapter 2, verse 20, that says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord reigns. He will bring his kingdom. Let all the earth be silent before him. So he will wait. He will wait for God to bring his final judgment. But how will he wait? Is he going to wait with gritted teeth? God, I don't like it, but you do it. No. Look again at verses 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail. The fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herd in the stalls. Sometimes we play this game of even if, right? Where we say to ourselves, even if I didn't have this, even if I didn't have that, even if I had no money in my bank account, even if I lost my health, I'd I'd still praise God. I I love him so much. And we say those even-ifs with a pretty genuine confidence that mm, the what-if will never happen, right? I mean, how many of us lose it all? How many of us lose our health entirely? And yet, what Habakkuk is saying here is no hypothetical situation. This is the vision of the future that God has given him. And as we read on in the Old Testament, we see that, indeed, this happened to God's people. And what is the what-if here? Fig tree doesn't blossom. No fruit on the vines. Produce of the olive fails. Fields yield no food. Flock cut off from the, field, from the fold. No herd in the stalls. No food whatsoever. And this is an agrarian society, right? They can't just go to the bank and, and take out some more money. Their food is their money. They can't go and buy any more food anywhere. This is starvation. Habakkuk is facing up against starvation for himself, for his people. And he's looking around and saying, this is going to happen. We will have nothing. Nothing on earth will remain for us. And yet, here's how I'm going to wait. I will rejoice in the Lord. Twice he says it for emphasis. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Everything else is stripped away, but he has joy. Why? Because he has God. If you have nothing else but you have God, you are the richest man on earth. God is sufficient for your joy. Do you you believe that? God is sufficient for your joy. That is what Habakkuk is realizing. Israel hasn't always realized this. Look back again at Deuteronomy chapter 33. Remember, this is the blessing of Moses upon his people. And as Moses continues, he blesses the tribes one by one, saying how things will be for them. But then he gets to the end of this chapter. Verses 28 and 29. So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine. 
whose heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. Happy are you, O Israel. Why? You live in safety. You are in a land of grain and wine. Your heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel. Why? You are saved by the Lord. He's the shield, or the sword of your triumph. And your enemies, you trample on their backs. Now Habakkuk says, even when there is no safety, God, even when there is no grain and wine, even when the enemy is trampling upon my back, happy are we because God is still our salvation. The sufficiency of God for our joy. This is a a major theme that runs throughout the entire scripture. Because again and again, Satan and his minions come to God and to the people of God and say, is God really enough for you to be satisfied? I mean, you think back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve rejoicing in God and in in the creation that he has made for them. Uh, But then Satan comes along and says, you really aren't going to be happy unless you have that knowledge that God is hiding from you. God isn't enough. You need that too. You can think of the book of Job, the heavenly throne room. And Job, uh, I'm sorry, the the, uh, accuser, Satan, stands before God and all of the other angels and he says, look at Job. He praises you, God. He, He lives a righteous life. But do you know why that is? You've made him rich. You've given him good health. He's got everything. Why wouldn't he praise you? The rest of the book is a test. Is God enough? The secret of the people of God, that the entire world and all of the cosmos is watching to see, is God enough? And the resounding answer is yes. Just last night in in our family worship time, we were reading Psalm 73, where it ends with the the beautiful words of, of verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Think of Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46, the the parables of the pearl of greatest price and the treasure in the field. The people in those parables sell everything with joy that they might, might possess that one thing. What is the pearl of greatest price? What is the treasure in the field? It's God himself. We with joy would give up everything to have God. How is it with you? It's easy to play that game of what if, right? Oh, I know that God is enough. But in the midst of your trials, 
Is God enough for your joy? Do you take joy in the God of your salvation? John Piper asks a wonderful diagnostic question in this regard. He says, imagine this. And forgive me for modifying it slightly. Imagine that you were offered the chance to live forever with no pain, with no sorrow. Every last tear has been wiped from your eye. No suffering whatsoever. All of your friends and family are there. And what's more, parents, your children are behaving perfectly. No more disobedience. Not only that, but the, the world around you has been perfected. All of the beauty that we see out in nature, it, it's been magnified a hundredfold. It's, it's the new heavens and the new earth. The mountains are not just glorious. They are glorious beyond anything that we can take in. The sea is also there. And you know what? It's, it's never as hot as it is in Texas in July. Oh, and hobbies. Everything that you love to do. If you're a sportsman, sports. If you're into reading, oh, the books that you can read. And on and on it goes. The food that you like to eat. Everything, everything is perfect, ideal. But there's one catch. There's no God. Would you agree to live in that paradise forever? Would it be paradise to you? What is it that makes heaven, heaven? What is it that makes paradise, paradise? Is it, is it the presence of God? Or is it the other things that he offers? Brothers and sisters, our lives are lived before an audience. All of creation looks upon us. The spirits in the heavenly realms, the the people that live around us, and they are asking that one question. Is God sufficient for his joy? As you go to work and you struggle through a job that, quite frankly, you don't really want to be doing, is God enough for your joy? Will you rejoice? Housewife, as you're washing those clothes, as you're maybe homeschooling your children, as you're cooking dinner, is God enough for you to be joyful even when everybody in the house is complaining? single person. Is God enough for your joy even when you are longing with every shred of your being to get married and to find that special someone? Is God enough for your joy? As we reach the end now of the book of Habakkuk, We've seen this path that suffering has taken the prophet. He started out by calling out to God, Lord, why are you inactive while injustice reigns, while the righteous ones suffer? And God answers. Tells Habakkuk, I'm not inactive. I'm doing something, and here it is. 
Habakkuk answers, I don't like it, God. How long until you fix that? God tells him, it's coming. But until then, live by faith. This week, we see two very key components. Three, in fact, of what it means for us to live by faith, even in the midst of trial and suffering. Surrender. Surrender to God and his purposes. He wants to use what you are going through to form Jesus Christ within you. Will you surrender to that? Because frankly, the opposite route is bitterness. Then we see hope. Hope for the future based on the past. Are you, even today, confident of God's salvation because of what he has done in Jesus Christ? Do you know that no matter what you are going through, God will provide all that you need because he's already provided more than what you deserve? And finally, joy. Rejoicing in the midst of sufferings. I, last night, started to make a bit of a list of places in the the scripture where we see these ideas going together. And uh, I just eventually stopped writing because there are too many. We see Paul talking about in, our, uh, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy, 2 Corinthians 7, 4. In Hebrews 10.32, we read, uh, I'm sorry, 10.34, we read about believers who joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 3.13 I ask you, do not lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. It's your glory. Rejoice in it. Acts 5.41, the believers leave the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name of Christ. We could go on and on, but let's cap it off with Hebrews 12.2. Jesus, for the joy of set before him, endured the cross. Let's set our eyes now upon him. As we go about our our lives, as we walk back into the suffering of day-to-day life, set your eyes upon Jesus and rejoice in him because he is enough.